It is my privilege to invite you to today's sermon podcast. I have made the Apostle Paul's prayer request my own. When he states in Ephesians six nineteen, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, the words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. May today's sermon come alive to you and aid you in your understanding of God's plan for your life. Well, good morning again. Good morning. This time, yep. Uh, so is anyone excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Amen. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, going to like football games and stuff. Uh, just every, like the buzz of the crowd even before kickoff. You just come in and... Um, it's all exciting, and that's what church should be for us. We should come in every week uh, excited, the buzz, um, and especially during the Easter season and what it means for us. Uh, man, this is my favorite church season. Christmas is, Christmas is up there too, but Easter, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very um, powerful for me to think about Easter. Um, but today is Palm Sunday, not quite Easter. Next week is Easter, and so... Uh, we are exactly, yep, one week from Easter Sunday. Uh, so today we're going to take time to remember and to look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's a short passage, um, but it's very, very powerful. And I hope that after today, we can all look at the passage just a little bit differently. Um, but before we dive into that, by a show of hands, who here has seen a Christmas story movie? Yep. Oh yeah, it's a... Oldie but a goodie. Um, but just a disclaimer before we start talking about this. I am not one of those people that plays Christmas music all year round. I don't play it before Thanksgiving. Absolutely not. So just know that talking about this hurts me just as much as it hurts you. There's some of you. But I promise it'll make sense. So for those of you that haven't seen this movie for a while, uh, let's take a little stroll down memory lane together. Um, A Christmas Story is about the kid right at the front uh, named Ralphie. And much like any other young boy between 4th and 6th grade, he has one thing on his mind that he is obsessed with and he wants it. Uh, For me, it was probably a Lego set or something. But for Ralphie, it was an official Red Ryder carbon action 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and a thing that tells time. Um, He wanted this more than anything in the whole world. And according to the internet, the phrase that I just said is uttered almost 30 times in the 94-minute film. Uh, That's once almost every three minutes. Uh, He's very obsessed. So this whole movie follows Ralphie uh, from the perspective of a preteen boy with an active imagination who he just wants a Red Ryder BB gun so bad in case he has to defend his family from his imaginary nemesis, Black Bart. And as much as I'd like to summarize the whole movie for you this morning, uh, we don't have that kind of time, so we're going to fast forward to the end. In one of the final scenes of the movie, uh, the moment that Ralphie has been waiting for, it's Christmas morning. And he's excited, but he's a little bit deflated because every time he's asked, or any, every time that anyone has ever asked him, what do you want for Christmas? And he's told them, they've said the same thing. You'll shoot your eye out. So he knows he's not getting, he's not getting one. His mom told him, even Santa told him, he's not getting the Red Rider BB gun. And as Ralphie suspected, the present opening came and went um, with no Red Rider BB gun. He was crushed. That is, until his dad discovers 
a present that must have fallen behind the couch by mistake. And with a sly grin, he gives it to his son, and he's very proud as Ralphie opens it. It's an official Red Ryder carbon action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and a thing that tells time. It wasn't at all how Ralphie expected to get the rifle when he first saw it in the window, but in the end, he got exactly what he was hoping for. In the same way, Palm Sunday has a parallel plot line a little bit to a Christmas story. A nation waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah, the Anointed One, to come and to save them from their oppression. But Jesus was totally contrary to what they were expecting. And he turned out to be exactly what the whole world was longing for. So if you're able, please stand with me as we read our passage this morning. Uh, Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, who you sent to show us how to live to show us the coming of your kingdom, and to be the perfect Passover lamb. We thank you for your grace and your mercy this morning, God. Be with us today as we consider your word, and may your spirit fill this place. Amen. Thanks for standing. You can be seated. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, and truthfully, I wish I had three weeks to cover it all, Um, but we're going to give it a shot today, do it all in one, one fell swoop. But first, we need to establish a little bit of context. Before Rome annexed Judea, where Jerusalem is, the typical Hebrew man was taxed the equivalent of two days' pay every year for the upkeep of the operation of the temple. It was aptly named the temple tax. But most people could pay it, uh, and those that couldn't usually were helped by those more fortunate. Two days' wages wasn't that much. Um, But according to some sources, by the time Rome showed up, about 60 years before Jesus was born, um, really only the Pharisees paid this tax anymore. Uh, And it was ignored by everybody else. But then Rome comes in, and they totally take over everything. And everything changes. And Rome wasn't as nice to people that slacked on their taxes. Not only that, they raised the taxation rate from two days' wages to three weeks' worth of wages, overnight. That's an 800% increase in taxes, essentially overnight. 
And that's, that, that assumes a six-day work week, which was common back then. Um, but that's a bummer because now you have to pay the taxes that they had otherwise ignored. It's 800% more, um, or they'll imprison you or kill you. Those are your choices. So it's pretty safe to say that most people in Jesus' time were struggling financially. If you were a Hebrew, you probably struggled financially, unless you were a tax collector and you worked for Rome, which they all hated you. And I bring this up not to give a history lesson, but because one of the main themes of our passage this morning doesn't make any rational sense under Roman rule, and that is giving. There is an incredible amount of generosity and giving from basically every single person in the whole story. Even though, mo- even though most of them likely had very little to give. So let's, let's look back at the passage. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus tells his disciples, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and the owner will send them right away. So we're in Matthew. Um, And as we see, the disciples go, they take the donkeys without asking anybody, and they head back. But in Luke's gospel, they run into the owners um, as they're already untying the donkeys without asking. So they're essentially stealing these donkeys. And the owner agrees to loan the donkeys to them in Luke, just as Jesus said he would. That's good. Um, And this might might not seem like much at first glance. Uh, It's just a couple of donkeys, right? But imagine if your taxes were increased by 800% this year. Would you loan your car to total strangers? The car that helps you farm and do your work so that you can feed your family and pay the outrageous taxes to a government that would rather see you starve than have you come up a shekel short on tax day. This car might be one of the only possessions you have with any value at all. Would you loan that car to strangers with no real guarantee you were ever going to get it back? I wouldn't. But in Luke's, so in Luke's gospel, the owner of the donkeys gives generously without question. That's the first person to give. The second, we see the disciples give, the two disciples that Jesus tasks with grabbing the donkeys. What did they give? Well, according to the text in Matthew, we see that they offer their cloaks. They set them on the donkeys. Pretty cool. But they also give more than that. If you read behind the text... In Matthew's gospel, the disciples don't run into anybody on their way to retrieve the donkeys or on the way back. It doesn't say. Um, And while I'm sure they intended on bringing the donkeys back to their owners, grabbing someone else's property without asking the owner's permission is stealing. Under Jewish law, according to the law of Moses that we find in Exodus, anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, they must pay back double. And we find that in Exodus 22. And Jesus and his 12 disciples, they were roamers. They went from place to place. Uh, They either camped or they stayed the night with people that were generous enough to let them into their house. Um, But they didn't have stable jobs. They were offered food. They were offered clothes as they went around. And I'm sure they were able to barter some. They all had skills. Uh, Jesus was a craftsman by trade. He could build things. Um, Simon and Andrew and James and John, they could fish. Uh, Judas was a skilled accountant. Matthew probably had some money left over from his years as a tax collector. So they all had ways that they could make a little bit of money, but no one could afford four donkeys if they had to pay back double. If the owner would have decided to take them to a judge, as was under his rights, 
in this time period, he could have taken them to a judge and gotten four donkeys in exchange for the theft. So obviously, this includes a little bit of speculation and a little bit of context. Um, However, I'm sure the disciples had a little bit of fear when Jesus said, hey, go grab those people's donkeys, and if you run into someone, just tell them that I need them, and it'll be fine. Um, I'm sure there was a little bit of fear. So potentially, they were giving their freedom, as they would have likely had to be sold for restitution, had the owner decided that he didn't like that very much. Next, we see the crowd in the story, giving of themselves. People were laying their cloaks in the streets, in front of the donkeys to be trampled, um, and ruined, uh, muddy, probably torn. And this could have been their only cloak that was nice enough to get to attend the biggest festival of the year in the capital, in Jerusalem. Yet they were throwing it on the ground in front of a donkey so that it could be trampled in the mud. And last, but certainly not least, we see Jesus, the Messiah, riding on a loner donkey to his death. For us, riding into town to give of himself so that we might be saved. Wow. So as we read this passage, we're forced to ask ourselves, what do we have to lay at the feet of Jesus? What do we have to offer the king, and are we offering it? Are we using our talents and our passions to glorify the kingdom? Are we being good stewards of the money that God has given us, whether it's much or little? None of these people in this story were being forced to give anything at all. They gave out of pure love and reverence for Jesus, just as Jesus gave himself out of pure love for us. It's pretty powerful. Amen. So jumping back to what we talked about earlier... If you're familiar with the Christmas story, you know there's more to the story once Ralphie gets the gun. The whole movie, he's been asking people for this BB gun. And every time he gets the same response, you'll shoot your eye out. And he's tired of it. But at the end of the movie, he finally gets his gun, the one he's been wanting the whole time. And he runs outside immediately for some target practice. He sets up a metal target, and for those of you that shoot guns, you know what happens there. And the first shot ricochets right back into him and breaks his glasses. Thankfully, he wears glasses uh, because the glasses saved his eye. And he was left with a small cut on his cheek. But ironically, when he got exactly what he asked for, he did exactly what was predicted. Almost. But there's the same level of situational irony that we have in our passage for Palm Sunday. For thousands of years, the Hebrew people have been waiting for the Messiah. In fact, God's covenant with Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 kind of set this process in motion. So for thousands of years, the people of Israel had been begging God for the Messiah to come and to save them. But somewhere along the way, their understanding of what the Messiah would be became kind of of warped in their minds. They became so caught up in the prophecies that uh, referred to the Messiah as the victor over evil, as the conqueror, as the king of kings, that they had built up an expectation of who the Messiah would be and what he would accomplish whenever he came to save them. Uh, They kind of assumed that the Messiah should be a big, strong man, a great warrior, just like his ancestor David, uh, the mighty warrior king. Uh, And he'll obviously ride into Jerusalem on a big, strong war horse, being as he's a big, strong man. 
and he's going to overthrow whoever oppresses us, and he's going to establish his kingdom forever. That's what they thought. But Jesus didn't fit the mold of who they thought the Messiah was supposed to be. In the minds of the Pharisees, uh, he, he wasn't a great warrior king. He didn't ride a big, strong war horse into Jerusalem, uh, as the Pharisees had come to assume. He likely wasn't a physically imposing man. Uh, he wasn't wealthy. Uh, he did nothing to overthrow the power of Rome, their current oppressor. Instead, he was a nomadic teacher riding into Jerusalem on a half-stolen donkey, sitting on borrowed coats, and walking on the leaves of vandalized trees. And he did all of this only to be condemned by the very people he came to save and put to death by the very empire the people wanted him to overthrow. It's not a very flattering picture. But it's a good reminder for us when we read this that God does not often work in ways that make sense to us at first glance. But when he moves, he can do immeasurably more than anything we could ask of him. So now we're going to take a couple minutes and we're going to look at two major prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in this Easter season because it goes to show you just how warped their understanding became of who Jesus should be. Now it's going to be a little bit of reading, um, but what the Bible has to say is a lot more important than anything that I can come up with, so I'm good with it. Um, So let's stand together one more time. We're getting our standing in this morning. Sorry. Um, But let's keep in mind as we read these prophecies that both of them were written between six and eight hundred years before Jesus was ever born. So this wasn't written after the fact. They have fragments dated to before Jesus was ever even born. So we're going to start with Zechariah 9.9, which says, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that's quoted in our Matthew passage. So this comes from Zechariah 9.9. And then the next prophecy, and the long one, is Isaiah 53. It's also known as the suffering servant. And it says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Thanks for standing. You can be seated. So for those of you that 
maybe don't know the rest of the story after Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey. This Isaiah prophecy is exactly what happens during Jesus' arrest, trial, and execution. And it was foretold 700 years before he was born. And I read all of this to you because the Pharisees frustrate me. Whenever I read it, the Pharisees frustrate me. Because the Pharisees were the teachers of the word at, at the time of Jesus. They went to a special school, uh, and they learned the word of God inside and out so that they could teach the people. They learned it forwards and backwards. They would have read Isaiah. They would have read Zechariah. In fact, many of them would have had large portions of the Old Testament memorized. Yet they failed to recognize the Messiah when hundreds of thousands of less educated people did. In fact, if you weren't a Pharisee or a noble equivalent in the higher-ups of society, you probably couldn't read or write at all. The estimated literacy rate during the time of Jesus was 3%. Three out of 100 people could read or write. Yet the people who couldn't even read the prophecies that we just talked about recognized Jesus when those who had the text memorized did not. In fact, Matthew tells us there was a large crowd before Jesus shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save us in Hebrew. Many people got it. They recognized the Messiah when they saw him riding on the donkey. But the so-called experts on the very prophecies that foretold Jesus coming were so stuck in their idea of what the Messiah should do when he showed up and what he should look like that they missed him. And not only did they miss him, They were the ones that had him killed. It's this irony that speaks so strongly to me on Palm Sunday. It's not my job to decide how God works. It's not my job to decide how God answers my prayers. I don't have God in a little box to do anything that I want him to do. But all the Gospels, they point to one important mindset that each of us should have in our relationship with Jesus. Expect the unexpected. Now, I'm sure we've all heard the phrase, God works in mysterious ways. And how true is that? I can imagine uh, how shocking it would have been uh, and how strange it would have been for a nation hungry for a Savior, a nation hungry for a Messiah, to see Jesus. Because he was nothing like they were told he was going to be by the Pharisees. He was nothing like they expected him to be. Unlike the Pharisees, we ourselves can get super short-sighted and caught up in the little things that we need solved right now. But Jesus asks us to trust him for the long haul. The Pharisees wanted a strong warrior to overthrow Rome. That makes sense. Living in the Roman Empire as a conquered people would not have been fun. Like I said, they raised the taxes 800%. They won. Not ideal. But then what? It seems like Israel, throughout the course of history, has been conquered every couple hundred years. So that would have only been a short-term solution until someone else came to conquer them again. What they wanted Jesus to accomplish was all earthly and temporary. But what Jesus did accomplish is eternal. He didn't just save one group of people from temporary oppression like they wanted him to. Jesus saved everybody, past, present, and future, from an eternity of oppression under our own sin. Jesus is capable of far more than we are able to imagine if we just expect the unexpected. 
But this issue is twofold. It's easy for us as church-going Christians to become like the Pharisees in another specific way. And that is idolizing tradition. Church tradition is super important. And it has led generation after generation as we walk with Jesus. But tradition is not our God. To the Pharisees, tradition was God. They were so caught up in what they had been taught to believe and how they had been taught to worship that they missed what God was doing right in front of them. The Pharisees, they knew the scriptures better than anybody. That wasn't the problem. They would have known the prophecies that we covered a few minutes ago by heart. Yet they were oblivious to the incredible work that God was doing. And in an effort to preserve tradition with thought to little else, they did everything in their power to thwart what God was doing because it didn't fit their preconceived notions of what God should do. And again, I don't say this to condemn church tradition, but we have to examine what role tradition plays in our walk with Jesus, or else we will become blind to what God is doing, what God is calling us to. Because tradition only deals in the past, what God has done. And that's incredibly important. Those testimonies are the foundation of our faith. However, we ought to be equally interested in what God is doing now and what he can do in the future. Last thing this morning. I want to take a few minutes to examine the most profound word in this passage that we've been talking about. It's uh, the only word in this passage that most translations leave in the original Greek rather than transliterating it to English. Hosanna. Hosanna is a Greek word derived from the Hebrew phrase hoshiana, that means save us. And this word is so cool for a lot of different reasons, because it's used differently depending on the context in which you use it. It can be used as a cry for help, like, save us please, save us please, I need help. Or it can be used as a statement, something like, we are saved, we've been saved. So at the same time, this word hosanna is a cry for help and a statement of faith. It's a big, long prayer. It's kind of like a psalm, all wrapped into one word, Hosanna. Just picture all these people lining the streets for Jesus and shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Some of them, when they use that word, are begging Jesus to save them. Please save us! Please! But some of them are saying, The Messiah is right in front of us! We are saved! That's so exciting. All with the same word, Hosanna. Some laying their coats on the ground before the half-stolen donkey. Some people climbing the trees to tear off palm branches to wave in the air and to lay at the feet of the king. But all hearts recognizing that the Messiah was there with them, right in front of them. What an overwhelming scene that must have been. So this morning, uh, as we close, I'm going to invite the Holtons back up. And they're going to lead us in one final song. And as we sing the chorus, as we sing Hosanna together, let's remember this. Jesus is our salvation. And he asks us to trust him and to expect the unexpected. Because through the unexpected... He saved much more than just one group of people in one specific situation. He saved the world, you and me, for all eternity. Such amazing love. 
And such good news for us this morning. So let's stand and let's sing Hosanna together this morning. I want to thank you for joining today's sermon podcast. You can find a copy of today's sermon as well as other sermons and the sermon outline from today on our church's website, www.mvcnaz.org. It is my prayer also that you will seek out a church home that recognizes the authority of the Bible.